0: You know, we've been doing a series, this is now the third week, this is the last week, on unity called, Come Together. And when God was giving me this, I started listening, you know, when God gives me a series or a sermon, I really dive into the topic and the idea pretty heavily, and so I started doing a search, was, you know, weeks ago about the, the song, Come Together, anybody heard it? By the Beatles, originally. Come together right now over me. You know what I'm saying? Well, I learned a lot about that song that I didn't know previously. Uh, Did you know the verses of that song are gibberish? Paul McCartney was giving an interview and said Lennon wrote that just because the lines rhymed, not because it meant anything. Because everybody kept asking, what does it mean? What does this mean? What what is toe toe jam football? Where are you really trying to drive home? And uh, McCartney finally revealed it decades later. Honestly, the song doesn't mean anything. Uh, He just wrote it because they rhymed, and he liked the chorus. The chorus is what means something. Uh, And uh, as I was preparing this series, I started thinking about that chorus, Come Together Right Now Over Me. And as I was focusing on the first week we did, talking about the prayer of Jesus wanting us to be unified, that's almost what Jesus is asking us to do today as Christians. Come together right now over me. I was very tempted to play the song, but you can search it, and what we've been doing in our family uh, to the point that now it is the only song Ethan wants sung at night. No Jesus Loves Me, sing Come Together. Um, uh, no Jesus Loves Little Children, it's Come Together, and it's not just any version. At first, it was the Beatles version, because he likes the Beatles a lot, uh, but there's a lot of versions out there. Michael Jackson sings a version, but if you're a purist, he changes some of the words, so you may not be thrilled with that one. Uh, Aerosmith does a little bit rockier version. It's kind of good. But the one that we've settled on that becomes the mainstay is uh, by Gary, I think it's Gary Clark. Uh, I need to look it up here. Um, Where is it? Oh, there, yeah, Gary Clark Jr. uh, And Junkie XL. There you go. There's one I'm sure some of you've never heard of before. Um, But uh, the lyrics are true to the original, but the tune is quite different. Uh, Not the tune, but the amount of electric guitar some of you may not be thrilled with, because it's pretty, it's pretty rocky. Uh, and I'm sure some of the Wee Center teachers may have heard us as we pull into the parking lot during the week, because we turn that on and crank it up pretty loud. And you can hear the preacher coming down, Colin Ray, <laughs> pretty easily. Uh, but I gave, you, I gave you an assignment then. You can go and listen to all those versions and see which one you like best. Uh, you may be a purist and, and be all about the Beatles version, or you may be like Ethan uh, and, and only want the, the rockier version. Uh, I'll tell you what he says, actually, is uh, when he asks for Come Together, and I start singing it to him at night, and uh, he goes, no, no, not that one. You know, like the Beatles, just regular voice, come together right now. He goes, no, I want, come together right now. I go, what? And He goes, over me. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll do, we'll do that version of the song. Uh, you should, if you see him later, you should ask him, because he's not is outgoing sometimes as hope is hope is probably the most outgoing of all of my children um but if he gets down to come together he'll sing that one for you um and uh so you should you should ask him about come together right reagan he likes singing come together over me yeah Yeah, there yeah see there we go i can tell you're smiling under your mask yeah right yeah that's what i'll say he said yeah that's not right that's not the right version um but that's that's the idea of what jesus wants us to do is to come together right now over him I mean, he's putting everything else aside, and it's over him that we're supposed to come together. Uh, and it's, it's all over Scripture. I mean, Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul wrote, I urge you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That it's not just something that's supposed to passively happen, that, that we can be unified just because I ignore all the things about you that really irritate me. But the way Paul phrases it in Ephesians 4 is, be eager to maintain the unity. That means subduing the things in myself that prevent the unity. That doesn't just mean trying to correct the stuff in you that would make us unified. That means fixing the stuff in me that's the problem. Be eager to maintain the unity. As he says in Corinthians, be at peace with everyone so far as it depends on you. So everything that is messed up in me, I've got to subdue, I've got you know, an issue there. That, that if there is disunity anywhere, even in my mindset that I perceive disunity somewhere else, in somebody else, quite possibly it's in me. You know, I, I heard a, um, on a podcast this week, I was actually going to save it for a later sermon, but it's too good not to, not to, uh, to pass by, uh, but this guy, the host of the podcast, uh, said it this way, that sometimes we're quick to confess the sins of other people because we haven't been confessing our own uh and that's a big problem when we're so fast confessing somebody else's sins and because something we see in them it's really truly honestly because there's stuff in us we haven't dealt with yet when we're keeping our eyes too fixed on the wrongs in other people we miss the ones in ourselves and that's kind of what paul's saying there in ephesians 4 be eager to maintain the unity that you can control And what we've been doing these past few weeks, we've been looking at that, this this unity that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, that uh, unity encourages belief while disunity encourages disbelief. Unity, as Jesus said it, he said, uh, the way he phrased it was, unity is the proof of the presence of God's love in me. Unity, the way I interact with other believers, proves whether or not God's love is present in me. So if I'm hostile towards other Christians, what I'm doing is I'm declaring to the non-Christians that God's love may not be in me or may not be to the level that I'm displaying for the world. And uh, uh, we saw last week, as we looked in the life of Paul, this, er, Saul, uh, when he was fighting against Christianity and he came to know Jesus, and this man went to him to tell him about the gospel, we learned that the Lord can use anyone who is available. If anyone simply makes themselves available to the Lord, he can use them, even if we don't think God can use them. We may not say it verbally and say, yeah, there's no way God can use that person, but we may be thinking in the back of our heads in the way we interact with that person or the way we talk about them to other people, and that's what we saw. It was in uh, Acts chapter 9. I opened my Bible to the wrong page. There it is. In Acts chapter 9, that's exactly what the guy, Ananias, God, Jesus came to and told him to go tell the gospel to Saul, Ananias argued with Jesus and said, no, I don't want to. Like, no, Jesus, you don't know how bad this guy is. He's, he's a bad guy and he does not need to be used by you. And Jesus said, no, you need to go and you need to go over there and tell him about the gospel because I'm going to use him in great ways. The exact words of Jesus were, he's a chosen instrument of mine. Meaning, I've given him gifts and abilities and skills that are necessary to do something great. But the first step is, you have to go tell him about me. And so Ananias does, Saul gets saved, gets baptized, and then goes out and tells the world all about Jesus. Actually, what ends up happening is immediately Saul goes into the synagogues and starts telling everyone about Jesus, and they're astonished. They're amazed at Saul's own transformation. And that we're going to look at the actually second half of that story today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, um, on the second half of verse 19. If you're using a the Bible there on the rack, it's on page 917, uh, but all the scripture will be on the screens. If you're online, all the scripture will be on the screens as well. Acts chapter 19. So Saul has just gotten saved, and his instinctive gut reaction is to do what we see here. Acts, 19, Acts chapter 9, verse 19, the second half. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God, so immediately, so he gets saved, he goes, he's baptized, he eats some food because he's been fasting for three days, and it says immediately, so after eating the food, he makes a beeline for the synagogues and starts telling everyone there about Jesus, and what amazes me about this is, it it really just flabbergasts me, I mean, really, think about it, the boldness of Saul. He came to Damascus on orders of the high priest to arrest Christians and take them back for trial, so some of them would be locked up and some of them would be killed. He gets saved, and so everyone there in the synagogue is anticipating Saul coming and just telling everybody about how bad Christians are, coming in and giving a report. So I arrested 15 Christians yesterday, but instead he walks in the synagogue, high-fiving people there, excited he's there to arrest Christians, and instead of that report, he tells them how Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. So, everyone in the room, their draw hits the floor. They're like, wait, you're the Christian hater. You're the guy who throws them. You you hate. What are we talking about here? And so, everybody's getting uncomfortable, and Saul's talking about how great Jesus is. And he's there in the synagogue proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, which, really, if you back it up to the end of the Gospels, was the very claim that got Jesus killed. And here is Saul making the same proclamation before these people. Look at verse 21. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? That means uh, attacking with intending to destroy. So he made havoc, intending to destroy Christianity in Jerusalem, of those who called upon his name. And has he not come here for this same purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So they're not necessarily amazed at what he's saying. They're hearing what he's saying. They're amazed at his transformation. They're amazed that he he has been changed, that there's something different about him, about what they've heard about him. And so they're completely amazed. Now look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now this is really interesting. I really dug down on this one. Saul increased all the more in strength. Now, he's not talking about physical strength. It's spiritual strength. But how did he increase in spiritual strength? How did he grow? How did he increase? How did he get stronger? I mean, the natural inclination, the the Sunday school answer would be, well, he studied Scripture more. Well, he spent more time in Sunday school. That's, That's how he had to grow. But if you look at the verse and what we've seen thus far, he increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. His strength grew because he was telling people about Jesus. His strength grew because he was telling people about Jesus. Because you increase in strength by exercising the very thing you want to get stronger. So his spiritual strength was increasing because he was telling people about Jesus. And so as he's telling more and more people about Jesus, he's getting more and more faith. He's growing more and more strong in his faith. I mean, Paul's already a genius. He's very, very smart. He's very, very ambitious. and He's going out there and doing this, but his spiritual strength by the writer of the book of Acts, uh, his spiritual strength is tied to the people he told about Jesus. His spiritual strength is tied to the fact he's telling people about Jesus, not necessarily about how much knowledge he ingested because you see, the first thing he did when he got saved was go and tell people about Jesus. First thing he did, he didn't worry about, hey, I don't know enough that, about Jesus. I mean, he just came to know Jesus moments before. He came to know Jesus, he went to lunch, and then he went back and started telling people about Jesus. He, just, he, he, he didn't worry about that, because as we've said many, many times, Micah has said it many, many times before I did, if you know enough to know Jesus, you know enough to tell somebody about Jesus. And that's what Paul did. Saul did. He went out and just started telling people about Jesus, and he grew in strength. Because there's a, there's a a principle Paul knew, and he writes about it in First Corinthians chapter 8, that we may feel like we need to know more and more before we can tell people about Jesus. But Paul said in First Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes you prideful. Knowledge, the more and more you ingest, the more sometimes, not everybody, I can, I can tell you, I, I know some people who are sitting in these pews who are extremely knowledgeable about the, about the, about the Bible, and they are extremely humble. But I've been to seminary. There's a lot of prideful people walking those halls because they feel like, I'm in seminary. I know everything. I am God's gift to Christianity. And they go out there and expound eloquently on all the stuff that they've you know, received. And we can witness the very thing Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge brings pride. Paul actually writes in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul started that church in Corinth by telling a bunch of people about Jesus. Hey, here's a bunch of people who know Jesus. Now we do a church. And he writes in there, he says, guys, when I came to you and was telling you about Jesus, I didn't use big words. I didn't come and tell you all kinds of complicated things. He says, I dedicated myself to only tell you about Jesus dying and raising from the dead because that's the main thing you needed to know. And then you can grow from there. I didn't bring you to to, year four of seminary and start dropping bombs on you. No, we have to start all on the same level. Jesus crucified, risen from the dead. And Paul said, you come to me now, and you say, well, your messages weren't deep enough, Paul. He says, well, they weren't supposed to be. You, You weren't ready for that yet. You weren't ready for that yet. We have to start somewhere. And so Paul says knowledge puffs up. And so Paul here called Saul because he's ministering to people who spoke Hebrew and Saul was his Hebrew name. He goes into the synagogues and he's telling people about Jesus. And they're hearing this and they, they just they, they can't quite grasp that this is the man who's saying this. And so they have a problem with it. Anytime you're declaring the word of God, you're going to face opposition. You can just write it down as fact. It's going to happen. And it may come from sometimes somewhere you don't anticipate. It may come from an ally that you weren't ready for. But it's going to come. Look what happens to to, uh, Saul here, verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening of a wall, through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now we learn from uh, some of his other writings, uh, he talks about this very encounter that it wasn't just the Jews who sent people to the streets. The Jews had convinced the governor, and the governor sent troops, and the troops were the ones in the streets. The governor sent troops to watch the gate and arrest Saul, and probably kill him in the street, because Saul was trying to do what the Lord wanted him to do, and so the disciples hear about this, and they take him and they drop him over the wall, which is fascinating to me. I mean, Those he came to oppose were now in his inner circle and some of his greatest defenders. He came there to oppose them, and now they were sneaking him out to protect him. And so Saul gets out, and he runs off uh, to continue to tell more and more people about Jesus. Now, it said there, back back in verse 23. Katie, will you hand me that one, that microphone there? I don't even know if it's unmuted, but we're going to try it. Thank you. Isn't my wife beautiful? All right. Now it's muted. I'll hold it in reserve, and we'll keep it here. <clears throat> um, so, he escapes, and he goes to Jerusalem. But back in verse 23, when it says many days had passed, it wasn't just like a couple of weeks that had passed. We come to find out later, this was a three-year period. Paul had been. He 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 writes about this in Galatians. He had been in Damascus, and he went into Arabia for a little while, and he came back to Damascus. And it's been three years, and he wants to go down to Jerusalem to meet Peter. Is what he writes. He says, "I've heard about Peter. He's the leader of the church. I want to go talk to him and experience this." And he's been three years. Saul's been three years telling people about Jesus, and so uh, he heads down to Jerusalem to meet Peter. Uh, verse 26. He attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They did not believe him. Which, think about it for a second, right? If we're the Christians in Jerusalem, many of us not only knew Jesus personally, but had walked with him. A bunch of us had been his disciples. You know, we were there when he was crucified. We were there when he rose. We saw him ascend into heaven. And this guy comes on the scene. He tries to kill all of us. And now he says he's a Christian? many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would be thinking the exact same thing that these Christians were. He's pretending so he can get in the door and bust us up and arrest all of us. And so that's what they were thinking. They were thinking he's a spy. And uh, they did not believe that he had come to know Christ. And so they did not let him in the door. We don't want this guy. All right? So he is, again, they thought just like Ananias did, he's a bad guy. We don't want him to come in. We don't want him to mess with us. We don't want him in our house. Uh, And so They did not let him in, but somebody stood up for him. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists... They, they were a political group that uh, wanted everyone to adopt the Greek culture. To Hellenize meant to adopt the Greek culture or to force the Greek culture on somebody. And so that was their philosophy. You needed to let go of your culture and take our culture. And when Alexander the Great took over the world, that's what he did. He Hellenized the world. He made everybody speak Greek, and, and he wanted everybody to adopt his culture um, which honestly paved the way for the New Testament that was written in Greek so it could spread faster um, so that everybody spoke Greek, it was written in Greek, everybody can receive the gospel now. And so these people, this political group, uh, uh, stands up and opposes him, and so he goes right back at them and said, no, Jesus is the Son of God. And so they did, just like the Jews back in Damascus there in verse 29, they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now I want to focus back up in Verse 27. And this man, Barnabas, Barnabas, if you're looking for a name of your child, that's a good one, Barnabas, you can call him Barney. But Barnabas is an interesting guy, you know, because he just kind of shows up on the scene here in the gospel, or not in the gospel, in the book of Acts, actually back a few chapters. Um, Barnabas, the name Barnabas was the nickname of a believer named Joseph, that's uh, what the book of Acts. Uh, what is it? Acts chapter four, verse thirty-six, tells us that Barnabas was the nickname of Joseph. Joseph was a disciple, but he was so encouraging that they named him Barnabas, and Barnabas means "son of encouragement." That he went out and just displayed encouragement everywhere. He represented encouragement, and he was that way everywhere he went. And he stands up for Saul before the church, offering encouragement to Saul before the church. Um, and the church knew Barnabas because he was in the church. He was an encourager. He was a leader in the church. Actually, uh, the, one of the church fathers, a man named Clement, back in the second century, he, his historical research uh, testified that Barnabas was actually one of the disciples of Jesus back in the Gospels, that he was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out to prepare the way, uh, and he was in the upper room when they were praying, and the Holy Spirit came. There's no way to verify that, but He's one of the oldest church fathers we have, and that's what he said about Barnabas. Oh, so very well could be the truth. We don't really know, but Barnabas is in the church. That's what we know. He was in the church in Jerusalem all the way back in Acts chapter 4, and then Saul gets saved in Acts chapter 9, spends three years telling people about Jesus, and then comes to Jerusalem, and Barnabas is still in Jerusalem, which really struck me interesting. And best we can tell, Barnabas... Was from Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem knew Jesus, follower of Jesus, son of encouragement. How in the world does he know Saul well enough to vouch for him before the church? Yeah, he could have traveled and he could have met Saul somewhere else. But I mean, we see him do that later on. Barnabas actually teams up with Saul and they go on mission trips together, telling people about Jesus. And Barnabas even uh, stood up for another one of his his fellow Christians, Mark. He stood up to Saul about Mark because Saul wanted to drop Mark. He had no compassion. Mark had got homesick and left him uh, at, at some point during their mission trip. And but they were going on another one later on. And Barnabas wanted to bring Mark, and Paul said, "No, no, he left us. He 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 went home. I don't want anything to do with him. Uh, uh, he's a two percenter. But we don't want him." And Barnabas said, "No, God gives us grace. God gave you grace, and we need to bring him in grace." And Saul said, "No, we're not." In that instance, Saul, I I believe Saul was wrong there, because later on, actually in Colossians. Saul talks about how great Mark is to him. So at some point, Saul had to go to Mark and say, I was wrong, man, and invited him to continue on in ministry together. But Barnabas stands up to the church for this guy that, as best we can tell from the book of Acts, he didn't know Saul very well, if at all. Maybe he'd never met him before. All he knew about Saul, from what we can tell in the the scripture, is that Saul hated Christians and then... He heard stories about Saul getting saved, he heard stories about Saul telling people about Jesus, and he heard stories about people getting saved from his testimony. And so Barnabas hears all this, sees Saul walk in the door, and nobody wanted to do with him, so Barnabas goes, seeks him out, brings him in, and stands up and says, no, this guy knows Jesus. We need to stand with him. Barnabas stood with Saul when nobody else would. Barnabas stood with Saul when he didn't know Saul's full story and resume and everything about him. Barnabas stood up for Saul when nobody else would. He knew that Jesus could change the heart of even a man that had the reputation of Saul. And he was telling the church, Barnabas was telling the church, y'all need to stop looking down on him. God can do great things through him. Y'all need to stop it. I don't know if you've ever seen the old Bob Newhart sketch. Where he's a psychiatrist and he says, You need to look it up. Bob Newhart, stop it. You'll laugh hilariously. But he tells this girl who comes to him in his office, Bob Newhart, and she wants, she gives him this whole story that she's scared of. And he goes, I'm going to give you two words that'll change your life. You want to pay me $5, you want to pay the whole fee. Here it is. You ready? Stop it. Yeah, but what did this happen? No, stop it. And that's basically what Barnabas is telling the church. Just stop. This guy's out here telling people about Jesus and you're trying to stop him from telling people about Jesus. You stop. I don't care what you think he did in the past. I don't care what you think about his theology now. It doesn't matter. He's telling people about Jesus, and they're getting saved. Stop what you're doing. Let him do what he's doing. You may not like him. You may not like the way he dresses. You may not like the way he speaks. You may not like his personality. He's telling people about Jesus, so stop it. And Barnabas stands up and vouches for him before the church. And they listen to Barnabas, and they let Saul in. And Saul begins to transform that Jerusalem church and people getting more and more saved, I mean, people getting saved left and right by the dozens, by the hundreds, because this guy's in there now, all because Barnabas vouched for him, stood up for him, didn't speak bad about him like everybody else in the room was. He says, guys, it doesn't matter what you think about his past. It doesn't matter if you were in the room when he was doing something in the past. He knows Jesus now. He's telling people about Jesus now. We need to stand with him, not against him. And he comes in there and everything is flipped on its head because Barnabas, son of encouragement, offerer of encouragement to anybody and everybody, Jesus brought the best out of Barnabas. And so he believed the best of Saul. Jesus, can, Jesus brings the best out of you so that you can believe the best of somebody else. That's not the only reason. He can do many things through you. But as we saw, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, some weeks in the past, about love is what unity is all about. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, this same guy, Saul, who becomes known as Paul when he goes to minister to uh, people who spoke Greek because Paul was a Greek name, he, he, he writes of love and says that love believes all things. That doesn't mean love believes all things, even the bad stuff about people. It means that love believes the best of people. Love believes all the good things of people. Love assumes the best of people. Assumes the best. And man, we are bad at that, right? More often than not, we're going to assume the bad stuff. We're wired that way. That's why the news feeds us bad stuff because that's what we like. That's what makes us feel better about ourselves when we hear something bad about somebody else. It makes us, puffs us up and tears them down, makes us feel taller, makes us feel stronger. Well, at least we didn't do that like that person did. That's why the trending news on the news uh, 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 apps that you have is always bad stuff because that's what gets your eyes on it. That's what gets the ads on it because they want that. But what Jesus says, what Paul writes, it's Jesus brings the best out of us so we can believe the best of others. When we're not believing the best of somebody else, we're not living out 1 Corinthians 13, that love believes all things. And so if we're not loving them, then we're not united, then we're not showing the world we belong to Jesus. We're too busy fighting each other over stuff that doesn't matter. Got quiet. You ever have a disagreement with another Christian? about something that doesn't relate to the gospel ever? Almost to the point of saying, I don't even want to look at you because it hurts my eyeballs. You may not say it, but you may think it. My, I, you see them out of the corner of your oh, my eyes hurt, oh, I feel sick, oh, I feel awful. I'm going to stay away from that part of town. That, that part of town is dead to me. Because I saw them there. Yeah, but Walmart's, if, well, I'll make an exception. I'll go to Walmart. But if I see them at Walmart, then I'm not going to go to that section because I know that they're there and they touch that thing and they're awful and they're terrible and I hate them. We don't say that, but we, you know, in, a, in the inner workings of our mind, we may think that. But the thing that Saul and what was displayed for us by Barnabas is what matters is the gospel. In a thousand years, what you think about somebody else is not going to matter. It's not. What's going to matter is whether or not you loved them by giving them Jesus. That's it. Period. End of sentence. You don't need all the the, the extra stuff. I mean, that's why. I've got the phone numbers of most of the other pastors in town, and I text them periodically, encouragement, and call them. This week, there's two different pastors I was talking to. Because we're not in competition with First Assembly, with Friendship, with Current Heights, with Rock Hill. We're not in competition with the Methodist church. If anybody is telling people how to get to heaven, we're working together. We're working together. And if I didn't list the church, it's not because I don't like them. I just didn't think of it. Memorial, Jason. I love Jason. All these places. I can tell you stories about these guys that you don't know about, about how they were. I was with them and saw them tell people about Jesus because they love Jesus so much. Phenomenal people, men of God, women of God. Honestly, if every church in town was packed to capacity for five services on Sunday, we wouldn't hit half the people in town. And So we're in it together, not in competition with each other. And I'll stand up every day of the week for every one of those guys because we're in it together. The same that Barnabas stood up and said, we've got to believe the best about him. Well, so-and-so said this. I don't care what so-and-so said. They're telling people about Jesus. That's a good thing. So I'm going to stand with them. I'm going to stand with them because they're telling people about Jesus. And so what sometimes I have to do, because honestly I'm human and I think different thoughts about different people and different, different preachers. Not in our town. Everybody in our town is fantastic. Uh, but there are some guys I think, man, I wish that guy hadn't said that on TV. I wish that guy hadn't tweeted that. That really makes Christians look bad. <laughs> I wish, you know, and... and I take his book, I'll look at his book on my shelf and be like, oh man, I don't, want to, I don't even want to touch that book now, that's tainted now, I don't want to go near it, and, uh, uh, but that's even in my own heart, I'm thinking the very things that I'm preaching against right now, that I shouldn't be thinking that, because that, if anything from that guy's ministry brought somebody to Jesus, then who am I to stand in the way of what Jesus can do through that person? And who am I to believe hearsay about what God is doing through somebody else? God can do anything through anybody who's simply willing to be used by God. And so we have to be uh, uh, people who stand in the gap and say, I'm going to love people no matter what. I'm going to get as close to Jesus as I can so I can take Jesus out to the dark world. And then I've got to come back to Jesus all the time so that I can get recharged and take more Jesus out there here's the idea. Anybody ever seen a glow in the dark t-shirt? You ever seen a glow in the dark t-shirt? Yeah. If you've got kids, you've seen glow in the dark t-shirts cuz that's like all the shirts that has a little sticker on there glow in the dark. Well then they open it like at Christmas or the birthday and oh glow in the dark and they immediately run into the bathroom to see if it glows in the dark and it doesn't. And they come out, well it's broken. But you know why it doesn't glow in the dark? Cuz it's got to be near light first. It's got to charge up, so to speak. You gotta bring it near the light so that it absorbs that light so that when it goes into the darkness, it can then shine. And that's what we are. And you gotta keep bringing that shirt back to the light, otherwise it's not gonna charge up and it's not gonna shine bright. You gotta keep bringing it back and the more, times it, the more time it spins near the light, the brighter it will shine when it goes out into the darkness. And it's the same with us. The more time we spend with the light, the the brighter we will shine as we go out. But the whole reason we come near the light is to go out and shine. If all you do is spend time in the light and never go to the darkness to take your light, then you're missing the point. Jesus said, go and tell the world. Go and tell the world. In the literal Greek, it means as you go. So as we are going, the assumption is we will go and we will tell. As you go, you shine the light of Jesus everywhere. And what we saw there in Acts chapter 9 was that strengthened uh, Saul's faith. That strengthened the spiritual uh, nature of Saul, him telling people about Jesus. I can tell you some of the strongest spiritual people that I know are people who cannot help but tell other people about Jesus. I mean, just it, it, it just it there's one guy I'm thinking of. He prays more than anybody I've ever seen. And he would witness to a tree if there was an opportunity. The tree would come to know Jesus. I mean, it just flows out of him. the The drive-through window at McDonald's, that guy knows about Jesus. the 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 the, the counter person and the guy making the coffee at Starbucks, they know about Jesus. Everybody knows about Jesus. This guy comes, it just just pours out of him, just pours out of him. And uh, he he loves Jesus so much. And Jesus has dynamically changed his life so much, he cannot help but give him away to everybody else. And he is so spirit—he's—I would call him a spiritual powerhouse because he just—he's a walking, living, breathing demonstration of the Holy Spirit on the planet because it's just flowing out of his pores. And that's the idea that we should be. We should be coming close to the light so we can then go and share the light. And, and it, What ends up happening though, when we don't believe the best of others as Barnabas did, when we don't believe the best of others, we're not shining light. We're shining darkness. You say, that's not possible. I'm sure you know some people who only shine darkness. You, call, you can call them anything you want. Emotional vampires because they suck the life out of you. Because all they do is just spew venom. All they do is negativity. All they do is complain. All they do is talk bad about other people. Not just all kinds of people, other Christians. The very thing Jesus prayed against. But we've got to fight it in ourselves because it's not just about saying it. It's just not, not just about acting it. It's about thinking it. Because we feel like sometimes we can think it and it doesn't affect anybody else. But if we're shining darkness inside ourselves, we're changing our very nature. And by changing our very nature, we're changing the lives around us because if we're shining darkness inside us, then that's what's going to give off as we go and interact with other people. That doesn't mean we go and we're fake happy and we're fake joyous. No, but the more we get to know Jesus, the more our insides will change and joy will become our default because of Jesus. Jesus will change us from the inside out. From the inside out, he will change us. And then we will begin to believe the best of others. And our default will become assuming the best of somebody else. Not saying, well, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, so I assume that this person thinks this about me, when all along they don't. But our, our negative influence of the enemy makes us assume the worst of what that other person may think about us. But instead of thinking about what that person thinks about us, we should be injecting Jesus in all of that telephone line of conversation, the person who shared with us, and the very original person, because it's all about Jesus. Because just as much as I need more Jesus, and I guarantee you I do, every single person I come in contact with needs more Jesus, whether they need Jesus for the first time or they just need him for the thousandth time. Everybody needs more Jesus. Everybody needs more Jesus. And if you know Jesus... That's why he put you in their life. So you can show them that Jesus. So you can be that Jesus to them. That's what Christian means. Little Christ. Demonstration of Christ in the life of everybody else. So it's not just WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus is inside you. The Holy Spirit is inside you. It's what would you do with Jesus in that moment, is the question. How are you living for Jesus wherever you are, at your job, at your home? At the church, with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents, with your neighbors. How are you living for Jesus? How are you living for Jesus? One of our church members displayed Jesus for me yesterday. I had a mower problem. Seems like I have mower problems frequently. I talk about the mower a lot. (laughs) I've got good neighbors and and good friends in the church. But he came over to my house because I was mowing on Friday uh, evening. And the mower started shaking and smoking and was making a terrible knocking sound. I mean, it wasn't just like this. I mean, it was like, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to explode here on the corner of my, my yard. This is not good. Some of you know what's, where this is going. Um, and then I look under the mower, and it's just pouring oil out from underneath the mower. And I'm thinking, oh, great. I didn't want to have to buy a new mower right now. This is not a good situation. Uh, and so I. Push it back over to the shed and uh, try to start it up again, and it does it even worse. And I finished the backyard, still in but I finished the front yard with the push mower. Caleb came out and helped me with the push mower. And uh, if you haven't done the push mower in seven years, it's quite an adjustment. <laughs> um, but I finished that, and he came out and helped me for a little while, and uh, we did that. And then our church member, uh, Brandon Gwynn, he came over to my house yesterday, and, and we looked at it together and uh, a piston rod had broken and punctured the engine block, Uh, and uh, he said, "Nothing. it can't get any worse. You can finish the backyard if you want. Just the the piston rod may just shoot through the engine block, I said, okay, thanks. I'll just uh, leave it right there where it is. Um, Thank you for letting Brandon come over, but the thing about Brandon coming over, he had spent the whole day running cows, and then he came over to my house afterwards. And he displayed the love of Christ in that moment. I would have been exhausted after a day running cows. I didn't even, honestly, I didn't even know what it meant until I asked him. And it sounded very exhausting. for. I mean, what was it, Shasta? It was like 150 cows or something like that? It was something crazy, yeah. And he had to go back and do another 250 or something. Um, and uh, he came over after all of that all day long and helped me with the mower, displaying the love of Christ. Didn't even hesitate, didn't even you know, balk at the idea. Um, didn't even know I was gonna use him as an illustration today. But he displayed the love of Christ in that moment, over himself, and that's what we have to do for everybody, is display that love, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's not fun, even when it's pouring down rain outside, or in our own personal lives. Display the love of Jesus to them because what Jesus tells us in John 17 and John 13, us displaying the love of Jesus shows the world we have the love of Jesus. So instead of speaking negative, instead of complaining, oh, man, i got to go do this. Oh, I can't believe they're going to be there. Oh, I can't stand them. Oh, I hate them. and I, They're just terrible. And all we do is complain. And compl-. if, if all you're doing is complaining, you need to go read Numbers 11 and think, see what God really thinks about complainers. That will blow your mind. I'm write it down. Numbers chapter 11. This is what God thinks about complainers. I'll I'll let you be surprised. Uh, And if all we're doing is complaining, then we're not showing the love of Christ. We're not. We're We're becoming known. We're allowing the world to change who we are as followers of Jesus. We're becoming like the world on Twitter. Twitter is a cesspool, if you haven't been there lately, with small bright lights here and there where we go and just spew venom and anger and frustration and bitterness. Some people do try to bring light to that mess. But what I've seen lately is even they get sucked into it and they start spewing things and they say, I'm going to take a Twitter break because I, I'm not showing the love of Christ. And we, we, as followers of Jesus, begin to absorb all of that. Maybe it's because we've absorbed so much negativity instead of absorbing Jesus, that's what we're giving off. And we become so familiar with this mindset of of complaining and negativity that we're just becoming a mirror of the world instead of becoming a mirror of Jesus. And so we need to draw close to the light so we can display that light back to him. You see, because negative thoughts about other people are not from Jesus. They're not from Jesus. They're a gateway drug that will lead us down a path he doesn't want us to go down. You say, oh, but, you know, we're supposed to judge the church, right? And I need to point them back to Jesus, right? But honestly, if we were in the right mindset, that would not be the first thought that pops into our head. It wouldn't. Negative thoughts, neg- neg- continued neg- habitual negative thoughts about other people, that's not from Jesus. It's not. He tells us to love one another, not as... We have been displayed love. We're supposed to love one another as he loved us. So how you interact with people you don't like should be the same way that Jesus died on the cross. Man, that's powerful. We're supposed to love one another as he loved us. Our desire should be for everyone to come to Jesus and come closer to Jesus, and we should leave the how they come to Jesus to him and stop trying to dictate uh, uh, how people should come to Jesus because that's his job. It's our responsibility to show them Jesus, to tell them about Jesus. Not say, okay, now here's Jesus and these are, this is how you should get back to Jesus. You've got to stop doing X and you've got to stop doing Y and you've got to stop doing Z and then Jesus will be happy with you. Our job isn't all that. It's to bring them to Jesus. To show them scripture, to guide them in scripture, but bring them to Jesus because he's the only one that can change them. We can't. I can't. You can't. You can't. You can become a pastor of a church and preach at people 50 Sundays out of the year, and some of them are never going to change. You can't make them change. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus. You can't be their Holy Spirit, you say, but I married them, and God put me in their life for this purpose. Yeah, but he didn't make you their Holy Spirit. Yeah, but they're my kid, and they need to Yeah, you need to parent, yes, but you're not their Holy Spirit. Yeah, but my parents, and I've got to make these decisions. Yes, you, sometimes at some point during your life during a season, you've got to make decisions to help your parents, but you're not the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but that person in, in our church is making these decisions, and, and it's not how I would do it. Yeah, but he didn't put you in that situation. You're not their Holy Spirit. He is. He is. We can still speak words of wisdom and guidance in love, A lot of times when we speak words of wisdom, we're speaking it out of frustration because they're not doing it like we want them to. We should do it out of love and not seek them out to make them right, seek them out to love them and pray for them because it's all about love, it's all about love, how well we love. That's how we will be known to the world. Not by how well we argue or how well we convince somebody of our point of view. But how well we love. Jesus said that, both in John 17 and John 13. It's how well we love. That's how the world will know we belong to Jesus, by how well we love. So how well do you love? Do you love people enough to believe the best, to believe the best, to assume the best? How well do you love today? Maybe you need to know what love is for the very first time and believe in Jesus for the very first time. Maybe today that's, that's why he brought you here. Maybe that's the whole purpose. You're sitting in the room or you're watching on your couch or at home or in the bathroom, let's be honest. Wherever this is, the whole reason you're hearing the word right now is because it's time for you to believe in Jesus. That's why he organized and orchestrated your life for this very second. Will you believe that Jesus is God's son he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. And if you believe that, what scripture tells us in, is that then you go to heaven. You don't have to say magic words. You don't have to you know, you know, do a list of 13 things before he lets you in. It's simply believing God's son died for your sins and then rose so you can live forever that's it. That's, it. that's, that's simple. That's, that's where it begins. That's where it begins. You believe that. And Jesus said in John 17, 3, you believe that. And then that very second, you get eternal life. You get it right then. It starts for you. Eternal life starts for you in that second. And if you want to come to believe Jesus right now, you can. In just a second, uh, uh, I'm going to pray. And we would love for you to come and say, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus. If you're online, you can click that link right below me that says, make a decision. You can go to our website, thequeen.church, and there's a button there. I made a decision. Sends an email right to my email, and I'll get it right here on my phone. And I'll call you this afternoon and celebrate with you over that. Make that decision today. Or maybe the decision you need to make today is, is to love with the love of Jesus to believe the best of others. And stop believing those lies. Somebody's been leaking to you. Maybe you're leaking to yourself. Maybe the enemy's already got a foothold in your mind and he's whispering these little you know, sweet nothings to you about somebody else that aren't so sweet. And it's poisoned you against that person. But that person may be somebody God is using. And maybe you need to start believing the best. Now again, this isn't, whenever I come up here and preach to you guys, God's already been working on that word in me, and this is something he's been preaching to me all this week, is we, this is something you have to work on, is believing the best. Because you can make the decision, all right, I'm going to believe the best today, and I'm going to believe the best right now, and then at 3 p.m. this afternoon, you're going to get a text message. Somebody's going to call you. Somebody in your house is going to say something, and that thing you commit to do right now, believe the best, is going to go right out the window, and you're going to assume the worst. What they meant was, well, I cannot believe, and I, I'm going to get them. And, I, and it starts something in you that shouldn't be there. Because the, the enemy knows if you make a commitment to the Lord and want to follow after Jesus, he's coming after you. He's coming after you. And so it's going to take work. It's going to take dedication. It's going to take the faithfulness that we sang about, the, the great is thy faithfulness, the greatness of God's faithfulness, then needs to permeate us, and we need to display that back and be faithful in how we act. We just need to know when that action comes, you know what, I need to believe the best right now. Love hopes the best, love always believes, love never ends. And we need to almost make that our mantra. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 13, seven and eight, I think. Um, that That's what we need to do, love always hopes, love always believes, love never ends. Love always believes, and so will we display the love of Jesus to one another and fulfill the words of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus to love one another, be unified in purpose? Or as we started off this message from Ephesians chapter 4, will we be eager to maintain the unity of Christ through how we love one another?